Let's join together in the prayer for illumination. Our Father, we are here before you. Make us ready to receive the word that you have for us today. I pray that your Holy Spirit in us would teach us your ways, that you would give us undivided hearts to fear and to praise and to love your name, to exalt you. We thank you for Pastor Matt bringing your word to us today. We just pray that you would direct his speech to us and that our hearts would be ready to, to just listen and embrace it um, and that you would be magnified in it all. Amen. So the scripture for today is 1 Kings chapter 8, 54 to 61. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You want to guess whose fault that was? It was mine. <laughs> We're continuing a series that we started last summer where we look at each book of the Bible for one Sunday and talk about why it's there, what encouragement, conviction, comfort there is in, in each book. And some of the books I know to, to some of you are more interesting than others. I was just talking with a friend recently about how every time when I was like 12, someone would say, read your Bible, I would go read Judges. Because, you know, big fat kings are stabbed with knives and a uh, crazy thing happened down by rivers and it's very dark and probably R-rated. And Anyway, but all these books tell us something about the character of God. All these books tell us not only the story of God's people, but the story of God's heart as his people repent or in more often the case slide into violent, horrific, oppressive idolatry. The kings, uh, we're looking at first kings this morning, and the kings lead. And uh, this is on the heels of, a, of the end of the theocracy or the church-state nexus story of, of Israel that didn't go great because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But what they were originally supposed to do was um, worship the Lord regularly, and him alone, and trust in a, a system that I'm calling a church-state nexus or a theocracy, if you will. One of my professors thinks he should get a nickel every time someone says church-state nexus, so that's like three now. And the nation complained 
because it wasn't familiar to them. And so what they said was, we want a king like the other nations. And so wanting a king is not a great desire, and then like the other nations is even worse, because what do kings do most of the time, both in Israel and in the history of the world? They make a name for themselves. They build big houses on the backs of slaves. They oppress people. And what God did was give the people what they want, but then he gave them kings that were supposed to stand between the enemy and the people. So in one sense, he gave them kings like the other nations, but in another sense, he gave them kings that when those kings were humble before God, sometimes in moments and and very rarely for long periods of time, the nations were blessed with peace. And people harmed one another less. There was less murder and horrific idolatry. So if you read 1 Kings, or when you read 1 Kings, because I know I'm going to intrigue you all so much that you're going to go home and want to read it probably over lunch, there are some kings that are good. And what that means is that they're humble before the Lord. They do not allow idol worship, and they take down the high places, which were symbols of those idol worships. There are some kings that are pretty good where they do not lead the people in idol worship, but they left the high places up so people still remember. And then there are a whole lot of kings that are bad. I think one comparison that could be made is for a married person who's unfaithful and that, and, but turns back and trusts again. That's a pretty good version compared with the one that is just constantly unfaithful. And the pretty good one leaves the pictures up. And I don't say pretty good because that's good in marriage. I say pretty good relative to these kings that we read about in 1 Kings. And I know that's a rough image. But here's the thing. I know that when I say idolatry, for many of you, that's a word that doesn't matter in your world. And yet for the Bible, it is the most destructive thing a human can do, both literally because you're not worshiping the true God and, as a, uh, and because of the ramifications of what it grows and builds in you and then does to your neighbors. The book of Kings and partly what Mandy read and partly in, Psalm, in Solomon's prayer in chapter 8, there are all these breadcrumbs quoting Deuteronomy chapter 4 and 6 and 8 and 9 and 11 about the great, great blessing of worshiping the one living true God and the incredible harm perpetrated through idolatry or that comes as a natural outflow of worshiping anything but God. So the kings lead, and sadly, they lead into idolatry. First Kings ends with uh, Bathsheba scheming on behalf of Solomon. Perhaps you remember the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah. The first half of the book is, or the first third-ish of the book is, a, is largely about Solomon. And if you're familiar with the whole of Scripture, you know that while it's going well, it's not going to end well because he's building bigger houses 
and in incredibly, incredibly fancy things. And you're like, is this for God's glory or Solomon's glory? And you're starting to get nervous. And Solomon himself even gives us some breadcrumbs in chapter 8 of 1 Kings verse 31. He says, and this is part of his prayer of dedication. He said, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in the house, then hear in heaven and act and judge. In verse 33, he says, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. Verse 35, he says, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, then hear and forgive. If there's famine in the land, in verse 37, he goes on to talk about battling enemies and sin and sinning against foreigners and those less well-off than others because that's what idolatry does is it leads us away from love of God and neighbor because those idols are violent and sexually exploitative and horrible. They encouraged child sacrifice. Multiple times when there's a decent king, it says that the king removed the cult of the temple male prostitutes. That's how ugly and horrific it gets to reject the worship of the one true God for either a demonic God or a dead God. And embedded in this is good news. It probably doesn't sound like it, but it's a reminder to us of what kind of king God gave. Even though they asked for a king like the other nations, and even though most of the kings were not humble before the Lord, when they were humble before the Lord, what did they do? They did what David did against Goliath. This is so important to understand the Bible. There are no Goliaths in your life for whom you are David. Goliath is sin and death, and you cannot stand in front of them. But one did stand in front of it for you and defeat it. This is why the promises of the house of David connect to Jesus, because Jesus is the new and better David standing before his people. If we want to picture ourselves in the story of David and Goliath, we are on the sidelines shaking, full of shame and fear and anxiety, and then so thankful that one was able to stand between. In the New Testament, after the command to love one another, the, the most, one of the most often commanded sins to flee from is idolatry. What do you spend money on effortlessly, without thought? That's a potential idol. And you need to flee from it, you need to smash it, and then you need to replace it with a move of the gospel. And I know that's metaphorical. I know that's hard to apply. That's the work of the Christian life because there is life available to us. First, by trusting Jesus for salvation and then by following him and obeying his commands. What in your life, if you lost it, you're not sure you could cope? Potential idol. You've got to flee Smash it, replace it with the gospel. 
In Marilyn Robinson's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Gilead, the main character is a pastor. And he said, it's such a remarkable thing. I'm paraphrasing because I didn't bring the quote with me. When I walk by, people change the subject. And then they come into my study and they tell me the most incredible stories. I've been in ministry a little over 20 years and people have come into my study and told me the most intimate stories of their lives and their past and their current relationships. And you know what they've never done? No one has ever walked into my study and said, I think I'm struggling with greed. And you know why? Because it's an idol of our current moment for most of us who live above the poverty line. And we need to flee it. We need to smash the idol and in this case, replace it with something very concrete, which is generosity. If it's pretty easy to give to your 401k, and if your 401k was lost, you're not sure you could stomach the anxiety potential there for an idol. I have offended a lot of you over political statements. And part of that offense is not an idol of your political party, but an idol of how you approach thinking about that. And I'm not saying I'm right. I have been wrong so many times. The last five times someone said, I didn't like something you said in a sermon, I was like, yeah, that wasn't well said. I wouldn't say it that way in the future. I'm not talking about it. I'm saying sometimes you're like, a, like you're jolted inside. And it's connected to an idol that you need to flee and smash and replace with the gospel. If you're married and struggling with lust, you need to flee that and smash it and look at your spouse and learn to look at them. And if you're a single person, the same thing except you only get to look at Jesus. Because that is an incredibly harmful idol. If you've been at this church any length of time, your preferences have the potential to grow into idols. Are there songs that we sing that you don't like? You gotta flee the potential of that becoming an idol. Your preferences actually matter. They're part of the composition of this spiritual family. But they can become resentment. They can become idolatrous. And then we're not honoring God. We're not serving one another well. The kings lead into idolatry with some repentance. After Solomon's story starts to go downhill pretty clearly, pretty quickly. Eh, not that quickly, but he had a lot of wives. We're introduced to Elijah. So it's interesting because the book's called First Kings, and yet the second half after chapter 10, the story is, in my opinion, dominated by these prophets, Elijah and then Elisha, that you'll hear more about next week. And I love Elijah. He's such an interesting character. I think he pretty clearly struggled with depression, 
because the heroes of God oftentimes are regular people most of the time. And the spectacular things they do are beautiful because they're trusting God who led them to do those and he asked the Lord to take his life. You who have struggled know that the people of God struggle because this world is under a curse. And we learn to pray about that and that helps and heals. We learn to be honest about that in community carefully because we've all been burned by sharing too much at times. And we notice this man who struggled so mightily also defeated 450 prophets that encouraged people to self-harm and to sacrifice their children and to engage in prostitution and oppression of poor people. These are evil men and women. And so if you don't like this story, that's fine with me. But how much harm was saved through Elijah's intervention? And this is a spectacular story, so I'm going to read it. It's going to hurt my eyes because I forgot my readers. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, I'm in chapter 18 if you want to follow along. And Elijah came near to the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word, probably because they were intimidated. I think Elijah was a fiery preacher. Some of you wish I was. I heard too many of them growing up. Let's not get into that. Focus. Then Elijah said to the people, nice putt. And Elijah said, I want to be kind. We have neighbors playing disc golf. Somebody just made a putt. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them And they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. 
And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets, let not one of them escape. And he seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. We think worship is a convenience and a part of our life. We think idolatry may or may not be kind of harmful because we live in a largely pluralistic society. Thought I heard something. I didn't. God is incredibly clear that worship is to him and to him alone. It cannot be divided and in doing so is incredibly harmful to our sense of relationship with him and to those in our lives. There were always people in the nation of Israel whose worship was to the one true God and yet when the kings turned aside, it harmed them, which reminds us that our unrepented of sin harms those in our families and those we're in friendship with. The kings lead into idolatry and we see some repentance and hope because God's promise is a king, even in this line that's so broken and terrible, who is not going to build a palace for himself, but told stories that we still refer to today because they were so well told. He's not going to fall into temptation because he is God. And then who would stand between all who put their faith in him and a worse enemy the neighbors or dead gods, and that enemy is sin and death. The hope for Christians is in God who redeems us and saves us and then guides us. And I was a little pushy today for me about the idols, friends, because there is freedom and life that we are not experiencing because the culture has convinced us that it's not that big of a deal. And we go back to the text and are reminded that our worship is essential to our humanity and our trusting God with not only our salvation but also our decisions is essential to our sense of relationship with him and then to living lives of life. And this is all because of his steadfast love that we receive and then follow. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are thankful for these stories. Though they are challenging and oftentimes dark, they remind us that your call in our lives is the only call of real hope and real life available to us. For those here today who are considering your gospel, Lord, would they know how sweet of an offer it is 
and that while it seems too good to be true, it is indeed true and on offer. And for those of us that are trusting you, would you comfort us, convict us, and encourage us as we follow you? Season our prayers with honesty and grace. Season our conversations with our loved ones with kind and true words. Holy Spirit, we believe you indwell us. We trust that. Would you help us to sense it as we go out from this place? Amen.